Broadcasting live from shark-infested waters, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Taya, and I'm joined by my beach babes. Mila, Louisa, and Zeba. And this episode is all about horror films featuring sharks. But before we get into it, go ahead and follow us on Spotify and or subscribe to us on YouTube and the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. To begin, we will discuss the famous 1975 classic that started it all, Jaws, directed by Steven Spielberg. We then move on to discuss the 1999 film Deep Blue Sea, directed by Rennie Harlan. So you better tread lightly because we can't wait to take a chunk out of this theme. I'm deeply afraid of swimming in the ocean because I feel like I don't know enough about what's in it. Yeah. I'm like, something is going to grab my leg. It's going to see me and say, like, this is the human I want. <laughs> I hadn't seen the ocean until I was, like, 20. Really? I guess I saw... A city, babe. I mean, I've seen, like, the Arabian Gulf. I've seen, like, big lakes, but I'd never seen the ocean. I just was landlocked. And when I was on a coast, I just never went to the ocean, I guess. Would you ever swim with them, like, for, for vacation? I would not swim uncaged. But I would swim in a cage in shallow waters. Or I would swim with sharks that are like, you know, the ones that don't really like it's it's bull tiger sharks and gray whites that you just don't want to be with. But any other sharks pretty calm. So I would swim with like some like calm sharks like on vacation. A killer sure. whale will kill a shark. Yeah. You know how they do it? That's part of my shark facts. <laughs> uh, Louisa, do you have any more shark facts that you would like to share with us? <laughs> Louisa, please, ravish us with your shark facts. First of all, and this always makes me think of a Tumblr meme, but sharks feel like sandpaper. Um, did you guys remember that shark that shark Tumblr meme, which was like, sharks are smooth as hell, and the guy was like trolling everybody? I can't say no, that I... I can't say that I remember that. <laughs> all right, well, that sucks. <laughs> we were in different areas of Tumblr. Okay, yeah, you were in like fanfic. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Guys, break it up. Come on, come on. Now. Excuse me? <laughs> I was in a K-pop Tumblr. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay, so their skin is made up of tiny teeth-like structures called placoid scales, That's known disgusting. as dermal denticles. And these scales point towards their tail and help reduce friction surrounding the water when the shark swims. Why would so they they're want actually friction? rough. Yeah. Reduce friction, babe. Reduce oh. friction. How would it reduce friction? It's streamlined towards the tail. Disclaimer, I'm not a marine biologist. I cannot elaborate on any of these. <laughs> this is disappointing because I like to think of everything in the ocean as smooth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. A dolphin smooth. Has anyone touched a dolphin? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I have. I have. Dolphins are definitely smooth. Yeah, they are smooth. Dolphins kill sharks too. Also, can't you be raped by dolphins? Yeah, they're very yeah. sexually aggressive. What? That ruined my fantasy of wanting to swim dolphins, dolphins. Dolphins rape each other and humans. Oh my god. They've had a good marketing team. Sharks can be stunned. When you flip a shark upside down, they go into a trance called tonic immobility. And this is how orcas attack sharks. They just like flip them over and then they're like immobile for a little while. Like a little roach. Yeah. Why didn't anyone in these movies flip the shark over? I don't know if they had the time. I feel like it must be a really annoying way to go out being eaten by a shark. Like... Annoying's not quite how I would describe it. Oh, gosh darn it. Like <laughs> It's like maximum pain. No way they can have any sort of casket funeral. Like They probably won't find anything but maybe a chunk. Like it's What are you waste. talking about, babe? These shark movies are incredibly inaccurate in how they depict shark attacks. Don't they, like, take a limb and then go away? Great whites, at least, feed by, like, apparently just doing, like, one fatal bite. They kind of wait for their prey to bleed out, and then they swim back. But you never get swallowed whole. That's a myth. That's why Jaws isn't always accurate. But Jaws is, like, unnaturally big, so technically mm -hmm. it's accurate yeah. within this film. He's not the Meg, though. The Megalodon. <laughs> he mean the Meg, though, isn't he? <laughs> Fuck Jaws. <laughs> Emasculating jaws. <laughs> 25 footer, I've seen better. <laughs> Wait, how big was the Meg supposed to be? <laughs> I don't know. I want to see if they actually made it way bigger. It's 54 feet. Oh, he is mega. 
<laughs> they said he that's in the name, Taya. We knew he was mega. He is a he's a big boy. <laughs> okay, Louisa, please continue on with your facts. Okay. Sharks are cute. That's the your smallest facts? shark is a yeah, the smallest shark is a dwarf lantern shark, which is about the size of a human hand. That's so cute. That sounds cute. Sure, sure. Okay, I'm about to look it up. We should domesticate them. They have. Some of them have been trained to, like, follow little mazes, and they act kind of like dogs, I guess, just, like, in the water. Okay, it's not a cute, actually. It looks a little weird. It looks like an anchovy. Sharks can detect your heartbeat. They have electroreceptor organs, small little black spots near their nose, eyes, and mouth, which are called the ampullae of Lorenzini. Pepperoni. Um, but yeah, this allows them to detect electromagnetic fields and temperature shifts in the ocean, but they can also like sense the bioelectricity, so like a heartbeat, basically, but not from too ridiculously far away, but like 328 feet, 100 meters. Yeah. But like shark movies will be ridiculous with it. Also, I think this depends on the species, but in order to protect its eyes from the claws and teeth of seals, they'll like swivel their eyes back and actually go in blind when they're delivering the final blow. So they'll actually rely on these electromagnetic sensors to point them in the Is right direction. Is that why their eyes change like, color when they get mad? Are you thinking about Bruce? I guess. That's what happens in Finding Nemo. I knew you were talking about Bruce. Yeah, we're going to continue talking about Bruce. He is our frame of reference for everything. The whole sharks can smell a drop of blood from a mile away is actually a myth. Um, According to BBC Science Focus, sharks have kind of the same sensitivity of of the other fish and can detect between one part per 25 million and one part per 10 billion, depending on the chemical and the species of the shark. But at the top end, that's about one drop of blood in a small swimming pool. There's this idea that menstruating people are more at risk to shark attacks, but that's just not really true. I never had a fear of going swimming with my period in the ocean until now. I'll add yeah, but it it's a myth. More reasons why I don't go swimming in the ocean. Shark attacks are rare. According to the National Geographics, you have one in 218 chance of dying from a fall, but a one in 3.7 million chance of being killed by a shark. You're also more likely to be injured by home improvement tools than a shark, according to the Florida Museum of Natural History. I mean, in fairness, of course I would be injured by home improvement tools. I'm at home. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Are these statistics about the likelihood that I'll run into a shark at all? But if I do run into a shark, what's the likelihood that it'll kill me? I'm around cars and like home improvement equipment all the time. They're not accounting for a situation. Right. On average, um, 10 people die a year in shark attacks. And it's usually the result of mistaken identity. But in comparison, apparently 150 people die each year from falling coconuts. So you're more likely to be killed by a falling coconut, apparently. But we probably cause the shark attacks, so like human-induced climate change, destruction of habitats, changing water quality, temperature shifts, and shifts in prey distributions all contribute to like why there are, like, in some areas, more shark attacks that you wouldn't normally, that haven't been there in previous years. Um, humans pose more risk to them. And BBC Future in 2019 said that overfishing and human-induced climate change have reduced the shark numbers in Australia waters by maybe 75 to 92%, which sucks. Just like the Meg. <laughs> Stop. Everyone's going to be like, why did you not talk about the Meg in this episode if you're just going to drop hints about it? <laughs> I watched that with my mom. And, like, you walk away from the movie at first at, like, probably, like, an hour and 15 minutes. And you're like, okay, it's over. And, like, the fish that we've been after is in the Megalodon. That big thing there is the Megalodon. So it was, like, two shark movies in one. I was like, are you kidding? It's just, like, the Alaskan bullworm. <laughs> There's just two conveniently placed very large sharks. No. No. They, they're, this ocean ain't big enough for the two of them. Okay, final fact, and it's my favorite. Sharks are misandrists. According to the National... (laughs) Sorry. According to the National Geographic, 93% of shark attacks around the world between 1580 and 2010 were on males. The Austria Bond University study also found that sharks are nine times more likely to kill men than women. Did you say Austria or Australia? Australia. Okay. Austria, of course, where there's famously lots of sharks. This... really brings a lot of inconsistencies to all these movies as well because they would have you think having a big pair of titties would be (laughs) magnets for a shark that's what i believed i was like sharks are i'm safe 
The Monstrous Feminine is now on Apple Podcasts, so please go leave us a five-star review. If you do, you might just get a shout-out on our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Nina from Bulgaria, who gives us five stars and says, This is my favourite podcast. Keep up the good work. Hello. Thank you for your kind words. I wish you to have a summer of blue skies. Blue skies, calm waters, no sharks. A little reminder that we are now on Patreon. For as little as £1 a month, you gain access to our Discord to chat with us. For £3 a month, you receive an extended version of our monthly episode. And for £5, you will get a whole new bonus episode. If you want to support us, please go become a paranormal patron. In Jaws, a large great white shark starts feeding on humans in the water surrounding a small summer island called Amity. After the town mayor insists on keeping the beach open for tourism profit, the police chief, Martin Brody, becomes increasingly concerned for beachgoers. He joins forces with a professional shark fisherman, Quint, and a marine biologist, Hooper, who hunt down the terrifying finned beast. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. I'm going to start by saying that I like this film a lot, and I really like Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I really like the shark. I just think it's like a really good movie. Like I don't even know. Like I said, like this morning when I messaged the group, I hadn't seen it since I was probably eight because it actually terrified me. Did you uncover any deep yeah, kind of fear? Yeah, I absolutely did. It was still pretty like I watched some of it through my fingers, type scared. Oh, really? Also, the music has wedged itself under my skin just from when I was younger watching it. So iconic. Everything's yeah. iconic. Like the score, that like famous Dolly Zoom and the like just the whole like summer blockbuster innovation of it, like the marketing. I had never seen Jaws until like a couple weeks back when I watched this and I was like, okay, so Chrissy, that's her name, Chrissy the sea witch who only knows four words, um, takes off her top in the first like four minutes of the movie and then also there's like immediately an upskirt shot like I think maybe even before we see Chrissy the sea witch and I was like oh our sharks h word our shark is really horny right now like I did not know where this was going and like the rest of the movie has no women like there's the secretary there's the cop's wife but otherwise it's like homosocial bonding on the open sea I, yeah, this is, I I think this film is incredibly sexist. Like, the thing with shark horror is that I do accept any and all criticism of it. I think it's deeply, deeply flawed. But do I love it aggressively? Would I die for it? Not literally in the water, but would I die, like, on the hill protecting shark genre? Yes, I absolutely will. So... (laughs) What can we do but critique it but love it? Every other film we've been like, this is what we can do. These are the systems we need to change. These are the attitudes we need to shift. And now you're like, we can't do anything. Let's keep keep shark horror as it is. Change none of it. (laughs) Keep shark horror exactly as it is. In fact, give me more upskirt shots. I'm really taken aback by this, Louisa, because these are the things that bug you the most in every other kind of movie. (laughs) You also don't like comedies. Well, I understand Jaws is not a comedy. A lot of shark movies, are if not comedies like we watch them as comedies so like I'm gagged that like these are really the hills that you will like drag people off of but you're like listen the sharks are horny there's nothing we can do about it I came on this podcast and I straight up lied I lied to everyone I'd like to issue a public apology my introduction to horror was not through alien and creed it was through shark horror and i i am sorry that i did not acknowledge that openly before it is through shark horror um i think shark horror is like excellent top tier are shark movies your black exploitation the way that i'll die on the hill for those movies and and i'm like and don't fix them either they're perfect how they are yeah i guess say your point about the beginnings. I mean, maybe it's too soon to compare with Deep Blue Sea, but they begin in the same way with that like party, group of partying youth. But it's not in the same way that like other slasher movies where people have sex and then they die as a sort of like 
purification consequence. It's more like, let's let's open this film, you know, in this sort of like chill partying atmosphere, but then like, oh shit, a shark attack. It's more like contrast than any sort of weird like punishment. Do you think? Well, I made a note that this that these were like body horror movies, and in the same way that we talked about like why does everybody die when they're about to have sex or having sex, it's just because that's when you're you're most vulnerable, and like people be naked or near naked on the beach, and like that is when you're like super vulnerable or in the ocean or whatever. So I just yeah. thought it was like a continuation of that. Like, what what if it happened when you were naked? Like, <laughs> do y'all want to hear what Creed said about yeah. it? She she kind of talks about she's quoting another critic, but basically she looks at um, Jaws as a sort of film about castration anxieties and Jaws is a vagina dentata. Sometimes Creed goes on a tangent, a Freudian tangent, and she loses me a little. I'll be honest. But this is one where I'm like, I do see this film as a kind of castration anxiety film. So Creed kind of thinks that it's like the archaic mother vibes basically um which is typically like the huge voracious maw the mysterious black hole that signifies female genitalia which threatens to give birth to equally horrifying offspring as well as threaten to incorporate or swallow everything in its path and this is the basic archaic mother which is constructed within patriarchal ideology uh the primeval black hole and the originating room which gives birth to all of life so Basically, the threat of being swallowed is archaic mother again. And then she quotes uh, film theorist Stephen Heath, who analyzed Jaws in terms of the male castration anxiety. And he points out that after that first victim, literally all the victims are male and the focus is on, is on like losing legs, losing a limb, very body horror, as you said, Zeba. Heath suggests that the danger associated with female sexuality in the nighttime beach scene is displaced onto the shark because they're about to have sex. Um, and the narrative sets up an oppos- opposition between the men and the shark. Um, and Heath also mentions that in the novel, I thought this was quite a fun fact, but in the novel, the report of the first shark attack is delayed while the watchman finishes reading a story about a woman who castrates a male and t- attack her with a knife that's hidden in her hair. So in the novel, the link's apparently more explicit. During this time period, this came out in 1975, in 1974, women were just allowed to get a credit card on their own. So there was like this uh, a new wave of feminism happening. You also had like a Republican president who pardoned Nixon. So there was a lot going on politically at this time that I kind of feel like this movie is in a way um, a crisis of the American identity and crisis of the white male um, in society because of them being attacked throughout the movie um, and then it being taking place during the 4th of July. Definitely felt like this is a movie saying America is under attack and the things that you really cherish and value could be gone in an instant. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I also saw it as like attacks on masculinity because all of them, all of these shark hunters who come to town, they're like, I'm going to be the one who gets the shark. And then like all of the people who constantly fail. And then also, um, what's the name of... um, Uh, Yeah, Quint, like Quint versus Hooper as these like two types of manhood of like, are you going to study the thing or are you just going to like go out and get it like you did in the war? It's like like there's like these competing energies of like how to take care of business, what a man's role is. There's almost like no. and, And also like the crisis of like when Quint fails like, what does that mean for everybody else? If like he's the expert who's caught 17,000 sharks in the past, then everybody else's strength and expertise is called into question. I think there's like a bunch of like basically male theorists as well have kind of like analyzed that, that both of those kind of points together. And they were looking at the comparison between like the war veteran fisherman and then the college educated um, scientist. And, like, they have kind of different takes on it in relation to politics and, and class. But Peter Biskind was kind of takes a post-Watergate pessimism take in relation to class. And he says, like, that's why there's such a corrupt mayor character and has conflict with Brody, the police chief. And Brody, for him, symbolizes, like, the prevail of, or the, yeah, the prevail of, like, the common man ideology, like, the average American middle-class man. Um, and listen, all of these theorists I'm about to say and their takes are not intersectional so he kind of looks at it as like um, 
Quint can't be the hero because he's like too working class um and hooper goes a bit further in that he's not killed but he also isn't the hero it has to be because he's like too intellectual he's not Mm self-made he's like the college educated rich kid man i don't know why he's a kid so he's kind of marginalized from the the win but yeah so it's brody who who is rewarded and that's kind of like i guess like a pessimistic take on america after watergate they he said um then another critic andrew Britton, looks at it as like optimistic after watergate um, and he basically says that the whole like ridiculous ending is like super satisfying with the explosion and it's meant to sort of give some sort of optimism that the common man wins. So it's more of an optimistic look on America. Um, and he also downplays the class element and looks at it more of like family values because he thinks the film's about protecting the family, women and children kind of thing. Stephen Heath kind of goes with that um, assumption as well, kind of looking at it as like the triumph of, as you said, the white male middle class guy. Um, Brody and then Frederick Jameson also has kind of what you're saying Taya but not really but he was basically saying like there's like this sort of death of older America which dies in the form of Quint Um, and that kind of America is like that war veteran that kind of older masculinity that you were kind of saying Zeba Um, and it's symbolic of like the America of like small business working hard self-made man but then it and the alliance between like Brody and I think Hooper at the end, who's like, like we said, symbolizes more privilege is like triumph of like corporations or something. I think that's a take. I think all of these interpretations don't really kind of romanticize an older America, which shouldn't be romanticized, but like they're interesting nonetheless. And I think the class conflict in relation to masculinity is interesting. This film was like on the cusp of the new Hollywood movement that Spielberg was a part of, of films that like did take a darker, grittier look at American identity. I mean, it, I think this film doesn't. Uh, stylistically, it does like challenge some filmmaking techniques, but in terms of content, I think it's still leans more towards the like rosier portrayal of American identity and like family and those sort of values. I don't know about like, this is now going back to the beginning of what Louise was saying about like Creed's analysis of the Vangela Dentata. I'm not sure if I can watch this film with that in mind. Like I, I know that we've just talked about the ways that this film obviously does reflect a lot of the political realities of that time. I can't, I can't read this film as political because it feels, there isn't like a sort of clear cut, like underdog versus authority narrative. And the shark to me seems like a really, this is, again, I feel like this is really wrong. The shark to me feels completely like detached from any symbolism or like metaphorical fear because it's like a primal fear of being afraid of an animal. I thought you were going to say the shark seemed like a really nice person. Tired. that was my second point that I will be now getting into. Obviously I watched when I was very young, so like I watched it purely from a sort of like fear-based reaction, but also then like studying it at uni means that I now they like, can only see it as like the Spielberg classic so like I can't I don't I don't have any of my own thoughts anymore I think like the reason why this film like I definitely agree with Mila to a certain extent like when I'm watching this film it doesn't feel like something that I'm watching that is necessarily commenting on society it's like definitely more of an afterthought that I have after watching the movie but I feel like one of the reasons why it kind of feels political to me is because I find myself rooting for characters that I definitely would not root for in real life <laughs> Like a policeman. <laughs> it feels definitely like uh, reaffirming like the white male identity in society. And maybe like it is like the death of like the traditional old war veteran type that like Sable was saying. And then like this is definitely a time period where people were like going to college more. I think even if you look at like the politicians, it goes from being like the broy type war veteran politicians to like the the sleek ivy league trust fund politicians mm-hmm. who are like racism in a suit from like and um i think now we're like seeing a mixture of a return to like the very blatant uh uneducated gross man that you're taught to fear um <laughs> rather than like the ones that are like scary behind the scenes yeah i definitely agree with that and i think that like 
if this film doesn't always like I read all this commentary and like I said I just think it's so blatantly not intersectional that I can't relate it's like you're right but you're commenting on like one experience of American society which is why I don't like wholly relate to the politics in the film like I think like sure it's probably really poignant analysis if you were like I don't know white working class male or or white working class male or like white privileged male you would might relate to this film um but it doesn't always like the politics doesn't feel relatable to me like kind of basically um yeah it's kind of like Jameson is saying Jameson is saying like when he's analyzing it I'm just kind of like well I don't really think like the older America of like the new deal America is something that can necessarily be celebrated because it's just so difficult to celebrate any era in like America quite frankly yeah 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 but like I get that the parallels are kind of there in the characters that they introduce being like the fisherman is this really body crude st- archetype of like working class men, um, albeit offensive. And the marine biologist is this kind of like out of touch college man. Can I tell a radical truth? I'm very attracted to Hooper. That's not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I've just tried to like, I'm getting in the headspace. Zayba. Okay, for Brody's a cop, so that's I'm not. A, <laughs> and and quite frankly, this movie is copaganda, and I'm not into it. But like, as far as the Hooper thing goes, I let I'm a, you know I'm attracted to his his smarts, his shark facts. I think his eyes are very pretty. Okay. 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 Yeah, it sucks to root for the policeman, and I feel like every yeah. like all like so many <laughs> iconic american films are propaganda i mean the lone rogue or not even just american like any crime thriller has a lone cop who yeah, like yeah. is out to like solve the case you know what i mean i think like during this time period though even now i would say it's still very much a thing where like they were definitely hyping up people to like get more funding for prisons and like the war on drugs and all of that was very much when all of these 90s 70s 80s films were going on you still had such a punitive public (laughs) oh oh you still had such a punitive public that really wanted like the cop to have justice and like there to be this good guy cop who's here to save the day from all the evils of the world also emphasizes that when something goes yeah. wrong, who do you, who else do you have to call but the police? Like especially in a, like in a shark scenario, I'm like, what would he do? Fun fact that the ending was just supposed to be like the shark getting like dying from their wounds, and they're like, that's not satisfying enough. Blow the motherfucker up, like. Okay, but the blowing the shark up set up. Okay, spoiler alert for Deep Blue Sea. They also blow those sharks up. I'm left. But I to think believe- that's a Jaws nod, right? Yeah. yeah, that there is no way to kill a shark but to blow it up. Because that is yeah. true in Sharknado. That's true in a lot of them. I feel like it's only true in shark horror, though, because mm-hmm. they're doing it because Jaws did it. Like, all mm-hmm. shark horror has a nod to Jaws and, like, pays homage to Jaws. Ja- ja- <laughs> I don't know why. Jaws. <laughs> pays homage Je to Jaws. Jaws. <laughs> Sorry, the quarter French leaped out. Um, <laughs> Beyonce? Beyonce, are you happy to be in Paris? <laughs> I don't know what I was saying anymore. Um, why, why they blow up? Oh, yeah. I think it's just, yeah, all paying homage to Jaws. And I also think this, in reference to Jaws specifically, it was like the most masculine way to kill the shark. And the shark is aligned with like the Pacific War, right? Like... Um, so it's kind of when the, when Quint goes on his whole really dramatic monologue, which is kind of funny, um, but horrific. The USS Indianapolis, I think, was a ship that was torpedoed and sank and the survivors were stuck for four days in open waters and they were shark infested and they like died of dehydration and shark attacks, shark wounds or whatever. But the way he has that vendetta against sharks, if he had that vendetta, I mean, he does have a vendetta against Japanese people, but we don't talk about it in those terms that that dude is like fucked up. Oh my god, is the shark meant to be a metaphor for the Japanese? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It could be. I was going to ask you guys that because like, basically, yeah, basically I just thought it was like the most masculine way to kill it and it goes back to like, war! <laughs> I have thoughts on this because actually like in a lot of different lore with monsters or even just like alien films, they always use fire to kill it 
or like bombs or like say for instance there's like Godzilla like there's like machine guns and they're dropping bombs on the street and it definitely feels like this very American way in movies to like kill anything you don't understand with a bomb. <laughs> but also but also I think that like the inhuman monsters in a lot of those like are always representative of like a non-white non-western other or like a Nazi. There were no people of color in this entire movie. There were none. There were none. I put that in the notes too. I counted them. There were three. Where? I counted them in the beach. I said, oh no, how did you get here? Get out of here, friends. (laughs) (laughs) Is that black or people of color more broadly? There were three black people in a crowd shot. I paused and I counted them. (laughs) Going back to like what the shark symbolizes and a little bit to Creed. So she's thinking of the shark as a kind of female other, I guess, being the sense that it's the vagina dentata. And I wanted to know what you guys thought of, like, the shark as being associated with, like, femininity. Because I think there's definitely a contrast set up between, like, the three men on the boat who are, like, drinking and complaining about women. <laughs> Particularly in, like, the the fisherman. Like, I think he's such an excessively sexist character. He's like, cheers to swimming with bow-legged women. And he recites a poem about a woman losing her virginity. It's giving the lighthouse. Honestly, all those scenes with the three of them on the boat, I'm like, what happens when men get together near water? Something, they get funky. In historical pirate stuff, I'm pretty sure they had like significant others on the boat. Like, I'm pretty sure that was a thing. I'm sure it was a thing. I'm sure it was a thing. I'm not sure I can quite uh, get on board with the idea that the shark is feminine or at least it like represents some kind of femininity you don't think it's vagina dentata at all no but like like i can see the castration anxiety i see it practically but i can't feel it in my heart you know okay (laughs) i i actually agree with mila on this like i feel like more than saying it represents femininity because i feel like nothing in the movie feels very feminine to me it more like feels like um the shark is like a representation of society no longer accepting uh, certain types of masculinity. And so that part of society being eaten away, which is like the part that I think, I guess the cis white male who is privileged would feel very nostalgic for, where you could talk about women's titties on a boat at the 4th of July (laughs) and kill a huge fish and no one gives a shit. Um, So more than it feeling like... uh, like castration anxiety. I feel like it feels like the anxiety that the world is changing because now women can have credit cards and now uh, <laughs> there's a new wave of feminism and all that yeah. sorts of thing. I feel like it's more of like an attack. It's, it's symbolizing more of an attack on like the white male identity than... It's more general for you. <laughs> yeah. I put more emphasis on the castration anxiety because I, I do really see it. But I do agree with you that it is wider than that and that I think the shark in general symbolizes like an other because I also wanted to ask guys about the Hiroshima like kind of alignment. Um, I think he even says like something about Hiroshima happening. I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, I did think the shark was aligned with like Japanese. So I think it's like basically any kind of other and I guess like the female body is an other. But yeah, anyway, so I or castration anxiety as it is based on the female body as being an other is relevant in that but I do agree that perhaps it should be more winded to beyond just monstrous femme I do think though although inescapably there are like political undertones I feel like the fear of the film and like why it was maybe such a success apart from like everything surrounding it in terms of marketing I think it does just really tap into that primal fear of being eating alive sharks like, I think it just is a scary shark. But I don't think that, like, a fear of sharks was much of a thing before this film. Like, I understand that you're That's saying true. it's tapping into a primal fear because it's a natural aggressor. But I also think, like, obviously because of the Jaws effect where, like, everyone was sudden. Like, it literally changed, Are like, everyone's psyche. Are you sharks? It did. I agree. Could we also say that, like, the fear of sharks also came from the fact that uh, submarines and stuff were in the ocean and that was like viewed as scary scary spy stuff that was against the US and perhaps that's why they dug into the ocean for a villain instead of something that was on land. Oh that's interesting, yeah. Um, speaking of villains did you know that Boris Johnson likened himself to the mayor of Jaws? Yes he did with COVID. I can see it. 
the negotiations that were going on about whether to go ahead with a second lockdown and he basically called himself the mayor of Jaws, which is like the stupidest fucking thing you can do in the context of like the excess deaths that this country has had and the mistreatment of the NHS. That's back-to-back episodes we've dragged Boris. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember if we posted this like way back in COVID, but there was like that meme going around of like the screen grab from Jaws of the mayor being like, this will all be over by Easter. And that was like exactly what Trump had said that week. Like he did not compare himself to the mayor in Jaws, but like it's the same shit as like prioritizing business over whatever. And that's where, that is where I thought it was making a political point. They weren't keeping the beaches open because they were worried people wouldn't have fun. They were keeping the beaches open so that people would continue like buying things from the yeah. Like, like they would like their town is a vacation town. They would have been in like deep shit for the rest of the year. Yeah, and in that way, I thought like it was the polit- Those politics were quite relevant because I was like, yeah, I mean, exactly. We're seeing not a shark, but yeah, COVID being a great metaphor for that. But I think that's exactly what would happen. I think the politicians would keep the beach open for the sake of like profit. So that part of like corrupt politician is still a relatable depiction. It was the first major motion picture to be shot on the ocean. And because of that, there were so many problems that the crew nicknamed it flaws. (laughs) They said that the mechanical sharks were malfunctioning because of salt water. And that at one point a boat capsized and they have to have divers like go and retrieve the, the shark. An actor was almost killed by a propeller. Another actor was almost trapped in a cage. Um, The actors got seasick. Oh no, that sounds awful. And they were like 100 days over filming schedule because it was so difficult to shoot on the water. That's actually why there's so much, like so many shots where like the shark's not seen. Um, It works better, to be honest. It does. It's like accidental genius. Like the shot of her dying in the beginning was meant to be, you were meant to see it, but like they had to change it so that she's just pulled underwater. Uh, the yellow barrels, which is also not true. Sharks wouldn't be able to dive if they had that attached to them, but whatever. <laughs> Shade. They had so many fin shots because of that. So yeah, that was kind of because it was just logistically difficult. The suspense is in the pacing. At times I do feel like when it's just the three dudes on the boat, it feel like it does drag on a bit for me. Like I understand that they're building suspense, but like... You're like, when will they kiss? When will they kiss? <laughs> when will they fuck? Actually, I kind of like how the end drags a little bit. Makes it feel worse in a good way. They kind of avoided a very common horror trope, or horror trap, rather, which is showing the thing too early, and then it's no longer scary for, like, the rest of the film, you know? Also, Spielberg asked people in the art department to avoid red because he wanted to emphasize the blood in scenes. It's all psychological. You yell barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. In this unhinged science fiction shark horror, a scientist called Susan McAllister is doing research on mako sharks. She aims to harvest a protein found in their brains to reactivate dormant human brain cells to help Alzheimer's patients. In order to produce sufficient amounts of the protein as a side effect, she and her colleague violated a scientific ethical code and made their brains bigger. These intelligent sharks are now deadly and begin triggering pressure flooding and explosions to sink the underwater facility so that they can escape. The team must work together to avoid the ruthless sharks, reach the facility's surface to safety, and stop the modified monsters from escaping into nature. Just what the hell did you do to those sharks? Did you feel something? Jim and I use gene therapies to increase their brain mass. What is that? As a side effect, the sharks got smarter. Okay, I love this <laughs> film. I know it's bad. I know it's bad. It's not bad. But I don't care. I don't it's, care. It's amazing. Back in the day, before we had streaming platforms, and if you wanted to watch something, you had to wait for the movie to come on, Deep Blue Sea was always on. Like, if we wanted to watch it, it would just be there. That's me and so my friend. true. That is so true. It was, I don't know what st- station it played on, but like when you flip through the cable, yeah, that's very true. It would just always be on. So it was like so accessible. So I can't tell you how many times I watched this film, but I did not rewatch it into, like as an adult until just recently. And I 
I realized that I was wrong and that when some of my previous gay awakenings and that I for sure liked the Dr. Susan McAllister. I was like, I just think she's so hot. She had like an accent. I, I was she's like, very pretty. She has like such cheekbones. But yeah, anyway, so I was watching this and I was like, oh, I realized why I like this film so much. And I, I have that like, you, do you ever see that? Like where you're watching films as an adult and you're like, oh shit. I fancied this person and that's why I had such an obsession with this film. Yeah, so my deep blue sea like standing is in part because I thought she was hot and I just didn't know it and it translated into being obsessed with the film. There's also L Cool J. I didn't fancy him, but I think he's amazing. Like I y'all say I hate comedy, but I love this film. I don't think it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's excellent as a comedy. I think it's supposed to be funny. I think it's intentionally funny in like a sort of subvert expectations kind of way like when Samuel L. Jackson is giving his like rallying speech and then gets eaten that is my favorite part of the movie I have never been more shocked for a moment in a movie <laughs> when I tell y'all that felt like snakes on the plane to I me. clutched my pearls I immediately sent that scene to other people that I know I'm like have you ever seen Deep Blue Sea no well, I'm about to spoil it for you because I can't experience this alone what gets me is you can watch that monologue alone because it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. He admits to murder. And then <laughs> he admits to killing those people on the mountain and then he dies. You don't even get to like unpack what he just said. He's like, I have killed before and I'll do it again. Now you've seen how bad things can get and how quick they can get that way. Well, they can get a whole lot worse. So we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to pull together and we're going to find a way to get out of here. First, we're going to seal off this room. I love it because it's so needlessly dramatic, this monologue. He's like, what does he say about the ice? He's like, ice is a slow killer, like moves terrifying. It kind of reminds me low-key of like the fisherman's announcement in jaws when he like scrapes this chalkboard and he's like suddenly speaking in riddles and i was like why are both of you like monologues so needlessly dramatic but that's why i think it's so funny is because it's like you know like action movies or in war movies there's this point in the film in which the hero or like the officer stands up and like you know he needs to tell everyone that they need to be prepared to die and this is what samuel jackson's doing and there's like you know slow pan in and then he gets eaten it's funny the only things that save you in this movie, if you notice, is your belief in God or if you're wearing a tank top. Those are the things, those things that are the things that determine whether or not you survive in this film or whether or not you can survive many attacks. I was taking note. I'm like, what is the, what is the key here to survival? And it was all the people in tank tops and also the man with the bird and his faith. A funny comparison between this and Jaws is the line right before he blows the shark up when he's like smile you son of a bitch we have the chef's comparing lines before he kills the shark is you ate my bird <laughs> i really thought he was gonna die i was like this the bird is holding him back i was really upset that he was really trying to save that bird over and over again and i was sure he was gonna die a because he was black but also b because he kept making foolish mistakes that weren't for his own survival but you know i was proven wrong I used to really like this movie when I was younger. I actually used to say it was my favorite film and watching it as an adult, I'm not really sure why. <laughs> there was yes. nothing in it that was like super child friendly. Um, I think it was just because I thought Saffron Rose was pretty and I thought LL Cool J was hot. And then Samuel Jackson was like a nostalgic figure and I was like, wow, this is everything I need in a movie. They really work shock well, but the shark like scenes are like bad CGI to be honest. I was shocked funny. by every death in this movie. There was not one that did not catch me off guard. Even after like seven, eight people had already died, I was still shocked by all of the deaths. Because the sharks are smart. And the and the fake science, like, okay, I guess Jaws. Can we talk about that? Yes. I love the fake science. Let's talk science. about the fake science. In Jaws, it was because it was a bigger shark and that made him special. In this, these were big brain sharks um, and that made them special. So, like, I guess it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't contribute to, like, shark phobia because we know that normal sharks are not that big or smart. But the fake science, like, they just would, you know, the particles. Like, goddamn, like, they would just say <laughs> science words. <laughs> I admire the screenplay writer's uh, 
attempt at like making the sciency without really knowing anything about science. I admire the effort. I sat there being like, how are you going to solve Alzheimer's? I'm so confused. I was like, yeah, they will. <laughs> Mila, I'm with you. I was like, they're going to do it. I mean, it's the same way like that movie Anaconda, the blood orchard one, where they're like, when we get this flower, we can like stop aging or something like that or make people live forever. And I was like, this sounds plausible. Okay. <laughs> but that's why the sequels, I think, suck though, because there's two Deep Blue Sea sequels. The whole plot is the same plot, except for instead of like trying to harvest protein for the, to cure Alzheimer's, their only aim is to make the sharks more intelligent so that they can then make humans more intelligent. And I'm like, but you see, the phony science, the pseudoscience of Deep Blue Sea was smart. Your science is stupid. The stakes were higher because the reason she was trying to save whatever was in that magic jar or whatever is because she really believed she was going to cure Alzheimer's. Whereas, like, you would not risk your life to make humans a little smarter. Also, that's not a, like, interesting part of the film. Like, I know that it does allude to the whole, like, don't mess with God's creations type message in the first one it feels a bit nail on the head to be like we're trying to make the shark smarter so we can be smarter (laughs) knowledge is the best thing in the world i think you like a villain because i know i just said that why can't villains be born and not made but i think to contradict myself entirely for whatever narrative i see fit i think dr McAllister is quite compelling because she's like trying to do something good like she's like the people will save She's actually so dumb for that. She's dumb for doing the project and she's dumb for every choice she made afterwards. I think you're blinded. Except for when she killed the shark. That was pretty damn smart. And she had to strip to do it. And I will stand by that, that she had to strip in order to survive. And actually, it was very brave of her to get down into her bra and pants. I also think that's part of the reason I had my gay awakening. I was like, it was hot. Male gaze, I'm on board. More objectifying women in horror films. That's what I want. Yes, please. And thank you. It was the tank top that saved her. I'm telling you. But it did not. She took it off. Something about these type of films, they do like villains very well. In the sense of like, you you know that it's someone with them. Wait, who's the villain in this film? Her, bitch. Oh. Mila. <laughs> she was naked. I got confused. I don't know. <laughs> I was like, we just said. Um... But, like, in these sort of, like, voyage-type movies, it feels interesting because, like, you have the monster and then you have, like, the villain who's inside the camp, which makes it so much more interesting because, like, it's kind of like a whodunit within a horror film. It's a thriller, a horror, a mystery. I like it. There's layers. Layers. It was philosophical. In these films, they always, like, have some sort of motivation, whether it's, like, financial or glory to their name or something. And I feel like that's a lot more realistic than, like, someone just being a villain just to be just to be a villain. Just to add more layers to this is that I think that this is a great mon femme film, man. Like, I, I think Dr. Susan is, like, such an archaic mother but it's just disguised as like the mad scientist but really it's archaic mother in the sense that she the shark is an extension of susan and creed says that the archaic mother is like a mother who's often unseen releases this like horrible toothy monster onto people and the fact that like the blame in this film is very gendered to me like when she admits to modifying their brain mass lol um she says you stupid bitch And then at the end, when she's about to die, her final line is, come to mama, and then she dies. (laughs) And so she's very much, like, the mother, like, yeah. Her whole alignment with nature is what's, like, or trying to modify nature kind of taps into, like, women's objection in general. Um, And like you said, Zeba, like, the people who I think prevail in this film are... The guy who is believing in God, but more so, like, the fact that he he respects God's... Cre- like, sorry, the religious guy preach, but he respects God's creation. And in the same way, the tank top guy respects nature. Like, he has a respect for the sharks and doesn't like that she's modifying nature. So it's kind of like men being cool with the natural order of things. Woman coming in, fucking it all up with her agenda. I was going to say, what is with films underwater? And I'm talking about the film Underwater as well, where it's like uh, the creature is like birthed from something that uh, mankind did. Like in in 
there's like an emphasis on a female character in them like the movie underwater like it's not necessarily her fault but she's the person at the end who uh decides to end everything by of course blowing it up the entire time i was thinking like why is there always like such a weird Mel Gacy thing with water movies? I don't know. Yeah, even with like Anaconda, Alien, etc. There's always like someone in a tank top and they're always like putting on some sort of safety gear with like a zoom in on the boobs. I don't know. It is so strange the way that like films have this like overwhelming uh, tendency to repeat scenes. Like I get it to play homage to like things that matter, but also... None of those themes really mattered. It's just like the male gaze repeats itself. One day I'll be like definitely up for a way more objectification in cinema, but like it's not now, but one day we can. I have a um, fun fact about Deep Blue Sea, just one, that it had an alternate ending where she, the doctor was meant to survive the chef was meant to die and it was originally meant to be played by Samuel L. Jackson, but his representatives rejected it because they didn't want him to play a chef. Um, I don't know why, but then LL Cool J played it and then the director liked it. So that's why he survived. He was likable. Yeah, he was really likable. But like, so it was supposed to be LL Cool J, the, the you know, macho shark, shark man and her that survived to the end, but the test audience didn't like it because they thought she was responsible for the sharks. So... So they reshot it and like had a bit more CGI thrown on it and um, and like killed her. In horror films, people only feel like vindicated when everyone dies at the end who was responsible. And I'm like, that is just not how things work in real life. The villains always walk away. It's like the exact opposite of what you said about Train to Busan, Zeba and the train conductor. As in, none of them came to work today. As soon as the sharks were out, they were like, I quit. It's done. They were like, fuck this. You're a horrible boss. I never wanted to work here anyway. I'm quitting this job ASAP. I mean, that's how I would feel. Yeah. I just saw your note about the song at the end. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, iconic line of LL Cool J. Must be his best song. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark fin. And it's just over and over. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark fin. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Mon Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to be our next Witch of the Week. We also have TikTok, so follow us at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Rooms up, witches out. <laughs> <laughs>